0: Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McCrae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events industry leaders and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production, and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results we encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca.
1: Pam Iwanchesco has been a livestock specialist with Manitoba Agriculture in Dauphin, Manitoba for more than 25 years. Pam was raised on a mixed farm north of Dauphin and attended the University of Manitoba, where she received her Bachelor's of Science degree and then proceeded to attend the University of Saskatchewan to complete her Master's degree in Ruminant Nutrition. She's passionate about agriculture and improving grazing systems and is continuing her efforts by playing a key role in reinstating the grazing mentorship program back into Manitoba through the Canadian Forage and Grassland Association. Pam was recently inducted into the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association's Hall of Fame. She and her husband have three children and raise grass-fed chickens on a small acreage outside of Dauphin. Pam is the lead on the Planned Grazing Project at MBFI. This project spans six years ending in 2021 and has provided huge amounts of data on the benefits of planned grazing from both an environmental and ecological standpoint. Pam is very passionate about this project and the impacts of plant grazing on soil and forage health and production. Please stay tuned for my conversation with Pam. Welcome to the podcast today, Pam. Thank you so much for taking time to meet with me this morning. Before we jump into the planned grazing project that you're leading at MBFI, can you tell us a little bit about your research history and your background, specifically as it relates to agriculture? I
2: absolutely can. So basically, you know, my research history started basically as a student when I was taking my master's on at the University of Saskatchewan. And I did a little bit of research in the uh, ethanol industry and had some steers on trial out at Lanigan, Saskatchewan and had some fistulated animals at the university as well. So that was back in my younger days when I started doing some research for my master's degree. And then I basically was able to do a research project here at MBFI. And so that was really, really exciting for me to be able to utilize the resources we have between the partnership at MBFI and Manitoba Agriculture and MBP, Ducks Unlimited and MFGA. So it was great. It was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be back in sort of the research game in terms of applied research so that it's practical based for farmers
1: in the Manitoba landscape. How many projects have you done researching with MBFI?
2: Just the one. I mean, it was a six-year project. So basically, when MBFI was initiated, I was able to start a project right off the hop. And so it's been a long-term project because, of course, with forages, everything needs to be long-term. It's not showcasing short uh, one-year projects, but this has been a long-term project. And so we were able to expand the project over six years two, three-year projects, but it was basically the same project replicated over the six-year period so
1: that we had some long-term results. And this project is done this year, or is it continuing again after this year?
2: So it finished up last summer. So the the end of the six-year project was in 2021, and we've sort of elaborated the project into something totally different this upcoming season. So this, in 2022, we started a new project on the same landscape, but we've looked at a different grazing regime in where we're looking at a 50% utilization and an 80% utilization for the pastures. So we've completely eliminated sort of the continuous grazing aspect. We've basically proved our point in that Continuous grazing is not something that any producer should do if they want to increase viability and long-term sustainability of their operations, which we kind of already knew, but we wanted to have some sort of a comparison basis as to what the landscape looks like, having numbers to support that in regards to just the detrimental effects of continuous grazing. So. We've completely eliminated that part of the project, but we're we're continuing on with expanding the planned grazing aspect and doing measurements in terms of making sure that the animal requirements are met in terms of dry matter intake and and before we put them out on certain paddocks. And so paddock sizes are being allocated based on availability of the forages and the number of animals that we have in terms of the carrying capacity of each of the paddocks
1: this year. So we're going to jump more into the planned grazing project in just a minute, but I want to find out a little bit more about your work as a livestock specialist with Manitoba Agriculture. When did you start and what does a typical day look like for you or do you have a typical day at all? (laughs) Actually, uh, you know, that's one of the benefits
2: in this job is that it's not cumbersome and that each and every day is very, very different and so You know, you look forward to coming to work because of the fact that every day is something different in terms of problems that producers are encountering on their operations, um, different recommendations that they're looking for. Each and every operation is different, so each and every recommendation that I make is different. And certainly, I'm not just a livestock specialist, but I make lots of forage recommendations as well. So in the spring, they're looking at different mixtures of forages for pastures or for hay crops, fertilization recommendations, you know, and then you get herd health questions, you get ration balancing. It's a great mix of everything in this particular field of agriculture. So it's something that is very rewarding when you're able to be able to help a producer. And unfortunately, I've been in this job longer than I care to admit, but I've been here quite a while now. And I, I still find it a very rewarding job in terms of being able to help producers on the landscape. And so it's something that I, I always dreamed of becoming as a young child growing up on a mixed operation myself and, and being able to utilize the services of Manitoba agriculture with my father when I was a younger younger person. And and so it's you know, I've been able to do what I've really wanted to do all of my life. So it's been a great rewarding position.
1: That's fantastic. do you go out and see farmers on farms, or do people call in, email, ask you questions, or does it kind of come through a different chain?
2: It's a little bit of both, and okay. so um, in in the past, we've been able to you know go out to individual operations and see each each individual um, on a one to one basis. That has changed a little bit as Manitoba agriculture has evolved, and so sort of our Mandate now is a one-to-many approach, and so we do a lot more things like field days or grazing schools, events like that, so that we're being able to utilize our time more efficiently and effectively. If the situation warrants that we need to go out to a farmer's place, we're can still, we still capable of doing that and able to do that, but it's certainly been restricted just from a time perspective more than anything right now, because... There's few of us on the landscape here in Manitoba at the moment.
1: And everybody's kind of so spread out that if there's not very many and a lot of commute time, then
2: Manitoba agriculture is in the process of hiring three more livestock specialists, which we're really, really excited about. So we'll have a a total of six back in the province again. So it's very exciting to be able to have a team that we'll be able to work with for sure. I still find it very rewarding to be able to talk to producers one-on-one and make sure that we're aware of the issues that are ongoing for producers. We know it's a very resilient industry, but it's also a very trying industry. And so Mm -hmm. anything that, you know, we can do to help producers make their lives a little bit easier, you know, if we can make the mistakes at MBFI for them, and they don't have to do that on their own operations, I think, you know, our research is well worth the effort, so that producers don't have to make big financial mistakes. And and you know and see their bottom line hurt. It's something that I think is worthwhile.
1: What do you find the most interesting about your position? What do I find
2: most interesting? Well, I I certainly have found the resiliency of producers and their capacity to want to learn and to be able to go back to the farm and make a living. I just find that astounding. I really, really respect producers who go through the motions of getting an education and then going back to the farm and running that business, because that's what it is nowadays. It's not just a lifestyle, it's a business, right? They have to be on top of everything, and they, they need to know their cost of production. They need to know, you know their animals well. They need to know their land base well. So I have the utmost respect for every producer that I work with. I've certainly seen it change over the time I've been here where, like I say, it used to be a lifestyle where producers did it because they enjoyed it. And it wasn't necessarily as stressful as it is nowadays with the costs being so high. The input costs are out of reach for some producers in terms of how they used to farm. And so they have to make those changes, those management changes and be able to adjust every single day in how they're managing their businesses. So I think that's probably the most interesting working with producers who are on top of everything. I just find it astounding how resilient producers are. I, I really appreciate everything they do for us.
1: Pretty amazing. When you think about it, especially say, this year with the input costs being so incredibly high, just the, those little changes that have made such a big difference in operations. I think for everybody, Absolutely. you just have to make the changes in order to, to kind of stay in. Yeah. That's what I
2: find about producers like they're willing to do it for the most part and and the people who aren't are probably not going to be able to survive but certainly you know and that's something that I deal with every day in terms of recommendations for producers setting up grazing plans making forage recommendations to improve the production on their particular land base every day producers are phoning to ask questions about how they can make their operations better it's encouraging that you know, we have a lot of young producers on the landscape willing to do that. You know, the older generation didn't have to do that necessarily. They kept doing things the same over and over again 30, 40 years ago, and were able to make a living without having to do those management changes. But it's something that I think is, is critical and essential nowadays.
1: You are working on the plan grazing project at MBFI. Can you explain what plan grazing is for any listeners who are unfamiliar with the term? and how this grazing system works.
2: So it's probably become a very big passion of mine to promote what I call planned grazing. It could be rotational grazing. It could, it, there's lots of different names for it, but it's basically a management system where you pay attention to forage production. Um, you're not necessarily paying attention to animal production in terms of pounds of gain per acre or something like that. I mean, it's certainly part of the whole picture. But it's a, a management strategy where you're looking at the entire whole system of your operation. So, in doing that, it means intensive management of the animals on the landscape. Like I said, you know, the producers who in the past have put their animals out at the beginning of May, you know, go and check them once a week in terms of herd health and then pick them up in at the beginning of October. You know, that's not a management strategy that we can actually promote anymore based on all of the research that's been done by institutions and, and otherwise. So, you know, you're looking at somewhere, somehow of moving the animals to basically replicate what was done um, when the bison roamed <laughs> the the Great Plains. And so where, when they grazed, they didn't come back to that area several times during the grazing season. They moved on. And so that's what we're trying to do when we're implicating that producers need to look at plant grazing as a strategy on their operations to improve production and resiliency. And you, you're not going to be able to graze a plant a second time before there is rest and recovery of that plant. So plants are very much like us. They require rest and recovery. And so plants need time to be able to rest and have a recovery period so that their root systems are not depleted to initiate growth again and be able to have that second regrowth or that third regrowth, depending upon how long the grazing system is. So I can't stress enough the importance of rest and recovery for the plants. And so being able to utilize the new fencing technologies that are out there and, you know, watering systems, those kind of things that have evolved over time. For anyone to use it, I think that's a strategy that every producer needs to focus on. And so planned grazing does that. You move the animals once a day or once every two days or once every three days. Starting somewhere in terms of splitting up your pastures into paddocks is a critical step. You don't have to do it all at once. Even putting up a cross fence in one year and then the second year, break it up into a quarter. Break it up into eights the following year. You can start small, you can start big, it's whatever you feel comfortable with. But allowing the plants rest and recovery is key.
1: And what would you say your ideal number of rest and recovery days would be?
2: So, what we started out with at MBFI was basically 60 days. And we've moved that up to 75 to even in a couple of paddocks, we had 90 day rest periods. And I mean, we were working on a small scale where we had 25 cow-calf pairs on our planned grazing system, and we were moving them in one acre paddocks. And the smaller the paddocks, the more it enhances your ability to make changes and allow for longer rest periods. So producers have to keep that in mind, that if you only have two paddocks, you know, you may graze one one day and graze the one the next day or, or, you know, the next week or the next month. But your, your capability of having increased rest periods is reduced. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're developing a grazing strategy or a grazing plan that, to me, the target would be, the essential target would be the day's rest. So you would start with the day's rest and then develop a grazing plan from there based on what your, your target would be. And that target rest period really needs to be the strategy you work around first and foremost.
1: for that project, did you have a set number of paddocks that you used each year, or did you just kind of use as many paddocks as you needed in order to get the number of rest and recovery days as you were targeting for?
2: Well, actually we, we had a limited land base. We only have basically a half section where we grazed these animals. So we had approximately 90 acres that we were able to utilize and, you know, it was a mixed species Pastures. So we did have some true native species on one of the paddocks. We had some tame species and then we had some, you know, bush in there. One of the things that I was adamant about in terms of developing this grazing plan was that a producer could be able to relate to that on their own operation. Many farmers only have strictly bush pastures or crown quarters or they don't have the capability of wide open landscape where there are no trees and and just have tame species in there. So you have to keep that in mind when you're developing grazing strategies or grazing plans that, like I say, every operation is different and every grazing plan has to be looked at in terms of what the overall farm goals are for that individual producer. So in saying that, you know, a producer can come to MBFI and look at this grazing plan that we've developed there and take home you know, a message that, okay, yeah, no, I can't do that at my place because my place doesn't look like this. It's not necessarily replicating what's at MBFI, but it's taking some of the logistical challenges that we've experienced. And hopefully you can relate some of those experiences on your own operation and make those adjustments accordingly. I've been in both situations from a personal perspective where we had lots of open land, tame species, that's obviously the easiest because those are high production pieces of land. But when you get into an operation where, you know, you have lots of rocks and bush and the ability to break that land, seed it down into tame pasture is very, very limited. You have to work with what you've got. And so maybe that is more just clearing a fence line and being able to put up cross fences in those operations and graze them according to what is there and not have to put all those inputs in. Of course, you know, you had mentioned earlier, the input costs are crazy right now. And so maybe it is just developing some cross fences. Maybe it is just allowing a little bit more rest and recovery on some, you know, native pastures that have been overgrazed in the past, allowing some rest and recovery. Each individual operation is different. And that's how I will look at each operation when asked for some advice.
1: What do you use for water? I feel like for a lot of producers, the water with daily moves or kind of bi-weekly moves or however often is one of those big limiting factors depending on what their water source looks like.
2: Absolutely. So I guess we've used a combination of both. When we first started with this project, it was very, very trying. We didn't have a water system set up. We did have the advantage of having summer students there. And so We hauled water the first year and it was very trying. It was very wet, similar to this year. You know, the students got stuck with the truck and trailer regularly. Um, (laughs) Those are the challenges that are experienced by producers every day, you know. And, And so, as I said, a lot of the stuff that we've been challenged with at the farm, every producer has that same challenge in some capacity. And so, you know, we're trying to make those mistakes for producers so that they don't have to. It was pretty quick in terms of coming to a decision that, okay, we need a watering system on this operation. There's no way that this can be financially viable to be hauling water each and every day. You know, it was taking an hour or two every day to haul water. It was ridiculous. And so putting in a watering system was a no-brainer. We basically installed a solar power watering system because we didn't have access to hydro per se in the first years of development at, at MBFI. And we had the advantage of having, you know, a really, really large slough at the north end of our paddocks. And we decided that that's where we would develop the watering system from. So at the north end of the Brookdale farm is a solar powered watering system. Um, We've added solar powered panels over the years so that we have more capacity for, you know, the batteries not being drained and being able to be charged. And so, yeah, we've had problems, we've had difficulties, which every You know, every producer who's had a solar panel, I think, has had that same experience. And we also have the ability to hook into the rural water line if it does go down for a day and we're trying to fix it. So, you know, it's a big advantage there, which many producers don't have. But yeah, there's been, you know, huge technological advances in terms of solar powered watering systems. I would really highly encourage producers, now that there is some funding out there through the Manitoba Association of Watersheds to take advantage of those, get your EFPs done and make sure that you have a plan going forward so that you can take advantage of some financial incentives to put in watering systems. I don't think that any producer who has had a good watering system will ever go back to allowing their animals to drink out of dirty sloughs or dugouts. You know, and risk having foot rod issues and those kind of things. Our watering system was developed um, in accordance with our planned grazing system in the paddocks. And so we basically um, have an overground pipe that was laid across the fence lines. And we just have a spigot system where we have a small tank that's moved from a couple of paddocks every every second day. We typically will water out of two different paddocks so that we don't have to move the watering system every day. And it's set up so that it's, it's relatively convenient. So it'll take an extra 15, 20 minutes to half an hour to move the watering system.
1: Which really isn't a lot of time when you think about how quick it can be to rotationally graze now with temporary fencing and all of the technology that's available. It really doesn't take that much time daily.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like once the initial setup is done, the step in posts and the the reel with some temporary fencing, you know, it takes 15-20 minutes a day to do a quarter mile or even a half a mile of, of step in posts. And then and you have to check your animals anyway regularly. So this is an opportunity to do that at the same time. Once you do it enough, the cows are really trained. They know that when they hear that quad or side by side or truck coming, that they're going to get fresh grass again and so they're just willing and waiting to to be moved every every day if the opportunity presents itself based on forage production it's more training the, the person that's doing it <laughs> I think that this isn't going to work I think once you get through the the initial hurdles it's definitely uh, a way more productive and resilient way to go but I do know that you know Grazing plans and implementing rotational grazing is a very, very high priority, Mm -hmm. so I do think that the rotational grazing is well documented and well supported through those new funding programs. Like, it's just a complete turnaround in terms of how they've um, changed, in terms of recognizing that rotational grazing is probably one of the biggest ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, being able to sequester more carbon. So. I'm glad that they have recognized that agriculture plays a really important role in greenhouse gas and, and carbon sequestration. So I, I'm really pleased to at least to hear that. This is the first time in my career that I've been able to confidently say that, look, the government is actually stepping up to the plate and recognizing how important agriculture is um, in everybody's lives today.
1: It's a much different message than like even five years ago, I feel like there yep. was, was being given what resources and labor have been required pre-implementation and during the implementation of this project?
2: So as I mentioned in year one, I would almost classify it as a catastrophe. (laughs) It was uh, a lot of old fencing. It was a lot of muck and mud because it was a really wet year. And so it was trying, there was a lot of trials and tribulations in terms of setting up the, the system initially we also needed to set up sort of a replicated approach. And so it took a little bit extra planning and details in terms of making sure that in our in our trial that we were comparing apples to apples in terms of the continuous pastures being the same size, but also having the same species in each of the paddocks. So that in itself was a lot of paper planning. So sitting down at a desk and actually Taking time to think through the process, how was this going to work? You know, and at one point, uh, I was talking to one of the directors there and a light bulb had finally gone off. And I said, oh, I know how we can do this now. And so, you know, it was hours and hours of planning that went into how we were going to be able to do this trial in terms of comparing continuous to the planned grazing and how we were going to move the animals and how we were going to set up a watering system. And so my word of advice to producers is don't get frustrated. Ask for help. Get different eyes looking at that piece of paper. Get different sets of eyes out on the landscape to be able to recognize some of the topography issues. You know, land itself, like some could be clay-based soils, some could be sandy soils, you know, all of those things matter when you're developing a grazing plant. Productivity on the landscape, bush, you know, how thick is that bush? It looks great on paper, it doesn't look that bad, but you go out there and if the cattle can't get through there, well, you don't necessarily get any kind of gains on on those landscapes if they're not, if they're going to be grazing this, the little area that is available to access. So It's really important to get another set of eyes. Peer to peer learning is becoming really popular. And I think it's a great way of being able to utilize resources, learning from other people who have made mistakes so that, you know, a producer who's starting out doesn't necessarily make the same ones. Yeah, I I can't stress enough being just reaching out and asking for help. It's something that we had a lot of hands in in the soup pot here when we were developing this plan and it certainly helped to develop the grazing plan we've had i can confidently say that we've made mistakes but we've also moved forward significantly in terms of how the grazing plan has developed over the past six years we've made changes every single year what worked one year does not necessarily work the next You know we didn't start grazing on the same paddock every year we moved it around we've taken different measurements over the years Um, so everything changes every year keep that in mind when you're developing a grazing plan
1: prior to the planned grazing project was it all continuously grazed or were there cattle on that landscape prior to the six-year project
2: Unfortunately, there was a very limited amount of cattle that was on that landscape. It used to be the zero-till farms. There was more annual cropping that was at the Brookdale farm. So there was some limited extended grazing there in terms of some bale grazing in certain areas to try to improve the landscape. But for the most part, it was mostly annual production in a zero-till cropping system it's a fairly productive uh landscape so we were lucky in that regard but the year prior to us taking it over it was seeded down into uh, perennial forages so we've been able to maintain that stand and i was just out there last week and you literally can't walk through there without tripping and falling down the <laughs> the forages are so thick and you know we were looking for grazing cages to take some peak yield measurements and we couldn't even find them because the forage had overgrown through the grazing cages it was just Phenomenal. In the last six years, I've never seen the forage productivity as high as it is this year. Here's another word of advice for producers is to manage your landscape, sort of thinking about the worst conditions. And so we've experienced drought over the last three, four Mm -hmm. years, you know, that has had had a significant impact in terms of forage productivity. And I think we've been very successful in doing that. And now that we've got adequate to excessive moisture, the forages are just responding in a way saying, Thank you for managing us so well. Because now, look, we've got moisture and we've got heat, and this is what we can do in return. So, the rewards in terms of great management have been astounding this year.
1: Before you started the planned grazing, what all needed to be done for fencing and that kind of input labor? Yeah.
2: So, we had some existing external fences just around the perimeter of the pastures they were in disrepair and so we you know over time we've repaired those to the point where you know it's adequate now the internal fencing we basically made the decision collectively that we were going to go with electric fencing and so it saved us on a lot of post spacing and things like that so we went with 60 to 70 foot post spacing it saves us a lot of energy and money um, in terms of the post so put two wire um, electric fence around you know splitting the continuous and the uh, planned grazing systems and then on the planned the internal paddock is basically one wire of step-in posts and or a reel and and some poly wire so in that capacity yeah our first year was a little bit more trying in terms of uh, input as i said we were lucky we had summer students and so we you know, we worked alongside of them in putting in the the fencing, we did GPS measurements um, in terms of making sure that our, our pasture sizes were equivalent in nature, like I say, the 90 acres on each of the paddocks and then, or each of the pastures, and then on the plan side, we did some GPS measurements to ensure that we were at the one acre size for the internal paddocks. It did take a lot of planning, you know, someone had to walk those pastures and do the measurements in terms of where the one acre paddocks were, but it's not necessarily something a producer themselves would do in terms of being so precise, but that's the, you know, the advantage of of an applied research farm.
1: So for a producer who is currently grazing in a continuous system, their biggest hurdle probably then is the water. If the interior fencing can all be done with the temporary posts for the most part, then that water is probably the biggest hurdle.
2: Yeah. And I mean, like I say, take advantage of the programs that are out there mm-hmm. now because they are paying for watering systems. You know, a large portion of the watering system can be paid for if you've got a good plan in place and that program is willing to support your your implementation of a grazing plan. I would say go for it. You've got help now that, you know, can financially aid in in
1: terms of implementing that plan. It's fantastic that that resource now is available. Is there people in the offices that can help if a producer, says wanting to go that route but doesn't know much about completing the application or that application process might be a little overwhelming for some people that can offer them that support in creating that plan and getting that application in process? Yeah, no,
2: absolutely. I mean, that's something we've always done. Um, We're a little bit short-staffed here now, and so we've recognized that. We do have the grazing mentorship program, which is in place this year. And so we do have three mentors on the ground who can assist in grazing plan development. We have support systems in place to help them develop the grazing plan itself. You know, printing out uh, aerial photos, mapping out areas of of where they want to put up cross fences, that kind of thing. So the resources are out there. All they have to do is reach out and we can set them up with certain individuals who can help them out.
1: You mentioned a little while ago about the grazing cages. These are something that I was unfamiliar with before I started at MBFI. Can you kind of give listeners just a little bit of an overview of what those grazing cages are and what their purpose is?
2: Absolutely. Even when I started with the department, my, my background is in more livestock production. So I was unfamiliar with what grazing cages were as well. But basically, it's just an area of exclusion where the animals do not have access to sort of a metre-squared area in each of the paddocks so that we can take a measurement. At the beginning of July, in each of the last seven years now, we've been taking samples out of that area in in a quarter-metre-squared scenario and definitely taking more than one sample per paddock. Typically, it's four samples per paddock so that we can take an average of those four samples And that is sort of our average of the peak yield production for that particular paddock. So we have several grazing cages across the landscape at both of the farms, both the First Street Pasture and the Brookdale Farm, where we're doing measurements of of what our peak yield is in each of the grazing seasons. And of course, it's based on climatic conditions, moisture, rainfall, that kind of thing. But it's good to keep track of what your average production may be on your operation so that you can estimate what your carrying capacity is. Um, And so rather than just guessing um, or through experience, of course, um, you have a better solid foundation of what your pasture is capable of. So that's the importance of the grazing cages. The other thing that we do is we do species identification. And so it allows us a little bit more accessibility if it's been grazed down, for example, the day before, we can go into that set of four grazing cages and say, oh yeah, this pasture is predominantly, you know, Syser milk vetch with some Timothy and metal brome. We still have access to a small area of that paddock where we can identify what the forage species are in that mix.
1: I hadn't thought about the species mix and being able to identify that way. I was more thinking about the, the forage production. So that's a good, good thing to think about as well as what you're growing in your pastures
2: certainly when you're dealing with the with the ruminant animal and they don't have access to it it's it's much easier to identify when there's some seed heads in particular
1: for the grasses. For this project how are you comparing grazing days and forage production and what differences have you noticed in grazing days and forage production since the beginning of the project?
2: We're monitoring the moves every day we're monitoring forage production every day We have the, again, the capability of summer students who go out there prior to the moves. So they will take samples prior to the moves. They will dry down the samples. So we get an estimate of the dry matter that's available. And then we allocate a certain amount of the pasture based on the estimated dry matter intake of the animals that we're putting on that paddock. This year, the paddock sizes are definitely changing based on forage productivity. They could be smaller. They could be bigger than one acre pieces. Two acre pieces whatever the case might be and then we're allocating you know a certain amount every day but it's all being tracked and so uh, we measure animal weight gain every month and so both on the cows and the calves we're doing estimates of dry matter intake dry matter production so all that is being tracked and monitored and so at the end of the day when our grazing season is is complete we have numbers to you know, be able to credit what has happened over the grazing season. In our planned grazing system for the past six years, we've had an estimate of an extra month grazing over and above what the continuous grazing system had. So we were able to keep those animals out there 30 to 40 days extra over the, the continuous cows because they had that much more forage productivity to be able to sustain them on the landscape longer. From a financial perspective, mm-hmm. that's a significant amount of cost savings in a producer's pocketbook for for not having to, you know, find them that additional feed in the fall, in you know, a feedlot scenario or also the fact that those calves are out there for an extra month of additional gain on pasture. So when you take them to the auction mart, they're that much heavier, you know, and, and you might be able to, to gain extra there, too. That's what we were tracking with the planned grazing project was just the additional forage carrying capacity through the planned grazing project.
1: And that extra month of grazing is huge when you think about the cost and time associated with bale feeding or bringing in alternative feed sources. What did you notice with the drought last year? Did you still have close to that many extra days of grazing or was that impacted by the drought situation?
2: we sure did um as i mentioned i you know this year we're certainly seeing the benefits of of good grazing management in terms of the response to the moisture and the heat now but we you know we saw that in a reduced capacity last year but certainly on the plant side of things we've been able to maintain the species in the mix um we've been able to keep that carrying capacity thriving just by managing those pastures regularly so monitoring them on a daily and weekly basis is, is crucial during the, the critical times, like during a drought. So always plan for the worst scenario
1: and hope for the best. What trend did you notice in both cow and calf performance and calf weaning weight between the continuous grazing and the planned grazing? Not surprisingly, we didn't notice much
2: in terms of performance on cows and or calves. You know, we weren't really focused on cow or calf production, like has been typical in conventional type of production practices on on farming operations. So you always look at, oh yeah, we need more pounds of gain on the calves so that we get bigger calves in the fall, and that wasn't necessarily our goal. Our goal was more focused on pasture productivity and longevity and sustainability. And so again, my overall goal was rest and recovery on the pastures, and so that's what I was primarily focused on. And yeah, we didn't see any significant differences between the two groups of cows and calves. If anything, we, you know, maybe had more open rates on the cows on the planned grazing because we were pushing them a little bit harder. But that's selection in progress, right? So you pick cattle that can perform the way you want to see your overall goals accomplished on your operations. So those poor doing cows need to go onto the trailer. And you, you, you select for better producing cows that can adapt better to the operation goals on your operations.
1: The planned grazing project did include an economic comparison between the planned grazing and the continuous grazing systems. Can you give us a bit of an overview on the difference in profit during the years of the project? Absolutely. So.
2: Initially, obviously, there's the, the cost of putting in the electric fencing, the labor, the, the watering system. It's significant in the first year, but we've amortized that over the six years, and it, it paid for itself within three years because of, like I say, the additional one month of grazing in each consecutive year that, that we held the project. So, you know, you make those initial investments. If you can take advantage of government funding programs, that help you know, then you don't have a, such a significant hit to your pocketbook in that initial year. But I think it's important to note that this is a, a long-term goal or project. It's not something that can necessarily pay for itself in one year. That's farming, right? And so I think that producers have to keep that in mind when you're going to the banker. If you want to take out a loan, you have to present him with results like this and saying, like, look, this is what happened on this operation. For the past six years, they got an extra month of grazing. The calves gained this much more weight over that one month. So when they went to the auction mart, this is what they got per pound versus those calves that were lighter the month before. So this is the increase in profit that paid for more of the fencing that was amortized over the six-year project. Those are the kind of things that you need to present to a financial institution when you're implementing a, a, a plan like this. And keep that in mind, that It's not going to pay for itself in one year. It may not pay for itself in three years. It may be four or five years, but it's a long-term goal. And I can certainly see this year, now that we've got some moisture after the last four years of dry conditions, how resilient those pastures are and how productive they have become.
1: Do you think that there's a difference in mindset between making an investment in something like the rotational grazing practices and the fencing and the water systems? and making an investment in a drill or a tractor or like a piece of equipment that you can actually see out working in a field? I guess it's
2: based on the mindset of the producer. I've certainly seen a switch, like a paradigm switch in terms of how producers think nowadays. There's a lot of producers who do not want to see metal on their operations anymore because of the high cost of depreciation and repair costs are just through the roof. You you can't even get parts for some things nowadays, right? It takes forever to get a part to, to repair that. So if you can use livestock to repair your landscape, why wouldn't we want to take advantage mm-hmm. of that? And if it's a matter of a little bit of extra manpower, being able to push posts in the ground with your foot, I, I think that's more of a significant investment than a drill perhaps you know we've done a, a coworker of mine did some research on the first street pasture with sod seeding and mob grazing and that kind of stuff and so there's other ways or opportunities to do things that aren't necessarily conventionally based um, in terms of input costs that may or may not work but if you don't try some small spots on your operations you'll never know if they'll work on your operation so yeah, the, the paradigm shift has certainly happened. When you look across the neighbor's fence and he's got some really high producing forages and yours are really short and look like a golf course, you know, management changes are necessary and you gotta go ask the neighbor what he's doing different than you.
1: Do you think there's been a bit of a paradigm shift from we can't take government handouts or we aren't going to take government handouts to more of a feeling that these are incentives and if producers are working hard in their operations to do better and be better managers of the land and the government is willing to provide financial assistance so they can continue improving these practices, then this is a better option? I, I think there's a little bit of both
2: out there yet, but for the most part, I think the recognition from the government perspective, I mean, I've been in government a long time and, I know that a lot of producers don't appreciate what government does for the most part, but I I do see really good producers out there appreciating what we're trying to do for producers in terms of government programming, that we're trying to get that recognition from the general population, that agriculture is important, that producers are touting what, what they do on a daily basis as not just a lifestyle, but it's, it's a business and they're running their businesses really effectively and efficiently. And, and yeah, it's telling a story about Mm -hmm. how great the landscape can be with livestock on it. It's telling the story of how resilient agriculture is, and that agriculture has to exist, or Mm -hmm. we as mankind will not, And so if government doesn't support it, especially with things like high input costs now, there's no way it's going to be here for very long. There's just no way we could do it without some government support sometimes. And truthfully, we have many producers fight Mother Nature. I mean, look at what's happened this year and the flooding and the storms this spring Mm -hmm. and things like that. Like, it's not the producer's fault. They have to rely on government funding sometimes. They have to rely on agri risk Programming—it's just a part of their business. I, I think people are recognizing that that government is is really there to help, and uh, you know I know there's lots of stories where they didn't help where they should have possibly, but lots of these programming options out there now are focused on telling the good side of the story. So it's about it's about how government can support really great
1: stories in the end. Yeah, I agree. They're going to pay you to do these practices that you're doing anyways. And it's going to help you then to do better practices next year and the year after and the year after then, then why wouldn't you take that?
2: And truthfully, whenever I take somebody who is sort of a non-ag related person out to any farming operation, they are just thrilled to be out on that farm seeing what's happening. I mean, many of the people that I've had over the years that have absolutely no connection to agriculture, going out to a farm is just a huge thrill. They love to see livestock on the landscape. They love to see cows and chickens and sheep, and it's just an overwhelming experience for them. We have to keep telling that story. It's essential to keep agriculture alive, keep it healthy. And if government's there to help, I think we should take advantage of that.
1: With everything that we've talked about so far, can you kind of give us an overview of why all of this is relevant to producers and what implications this can have for the land that they're pasturing their cattle on?
2: As I said, resiliency, I think, is probably top of mind. Um, with climate change happening, we've seen some dramatic weather events in the last couple of years. At least I have. I mean, when we're experiencing tornado watches at the beginning of June, when we're having flash flooding in April, like things aren't even thought out yet and we've got flash floods happening. You know, resiliency is key to keeping these operations viable. Having good ecosystem processes on the landscape are essential. We had Steve Kenyon out earlier this year and he talked about our water system being broke. I think in many cases it is. You know, we have seen certain shifts to, for example, limited to zero acres in summer follow. You know, back in the day, that was the practice that was being promoted. Give the land rest and recovery through summer follow acres. You know, we're learning as we go, nobody has the answers. And I I think it's just a matter of being adaptable and growing as each operation needs to. And so it's critical that we make management changes as we adapt to the environment, being really focused on key ecosystems in each of the areas. And all the cycles are really, really important to be mindful of when you're adapting with livestock and forages on the landscape.
1: And knowing all of the benefits of that style of grazing management, why do you think there isn't a larger uptake of producers who are using a system similar to this?
2: Well, I I think in part, it's a lack of education. Farmers are extremely busy. And so to get away from your operation, to go for a day or two, to take that time to go and learn from others is really, really hard. And I appreciate how difficult that can be. When I started with the department, we were able to get out to little extension events in each and every individual town. When we had unlimited budgets back in the day, and we were able to bring the ideas and the activities out to different operations. Every little town had a plot that we could showcase, you know, how to improve your operation. Now producers have to take the time and drive somewhere because we're limited in capacity as to how much we can showcase in certain areas. MBFI is a great little sort of diversification center in terms of forage and livestock production, but it's one area in the entire province of Manitoba. So someone out in the interlake has to take a lot of time to drive out there for a field day. And it's, it's, the whole day is gone where they could have possibly be, you know, making hay that day or something like that. I truly appreciate the fact that it's really difficult for producers to be able to get out and learn. I see that as one of the benefits of COVID, that you could take a lot of education online. However, again, you know, we're reduced in capacity with internet in rural areas too. So there's lots of hurdles that producers have to overcome before they can can implement these plans on their own operations.
1: If there's a producer listening who is kind of just at the tipping point of wanting to start, what's one simple message that you would say to that person to encourage them to try it?
2: I think first and foremost, you know, I know the environmental farm plans used to be very, very tedious in terms of the time that they took. You know, guys had to take two days worth of time to go through the first EFP process now it's gone down to you know half a day online so it's a lot easier to do they've made it easier to complete that workbook and just that alone helps producers recognize what possible improvements they can do on their operations and as i said earlier you don't have to start big starting small is key just making that first baby step is crucial so putting up that one cross fence is a start and if you're going to do anything that's where you start you know do that one year and do another cross fence the following year do it in the opposite direction you don't have to start big and again reaching out to anybody that you can is probably crucial if they don't know how to do it they can connect you with somebody who has there's lots of connections that are made out there in the industry nowadays it's way easier with emails and texting and and you know zoom calls etc so it's not as hard as it used to be in terms of reaching out and learning from each other. So, yeah, I think it's just a matter of taking that first baby step and, and go from there. You don't have to be perfect in year one either. We've made a lot of mistakes over the last number of years. And I'm proud to say that because if we hadn't, then how do other producers learn? They don't want to make the same mistakes. And if they have the ability to learn from somebody else's mistake, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? 100%.
1: You kind of touched on this earlier, but what are the next steps for this project? You've said it's turned into a whole different project. Can you give us a little bit of an explanation of what that project looks like this year and how it's moving forward?
2: Yeah, so basically over the years, you know, we've tried to increase the carrying capacity of that landscape. So this year we're putting that to the test. We've increased the herd size from 50 to I believe it's 63 cow-calf pairs this year. And, you know, the intention is that we can increase that even more over the next few years. The project has evolved into more of a utilization project with more rest or longer rest periods. So we're doing, you know, what we found to be sort of the the key component of the project, where we're doing a 50% utilization, graze half, leave half, and expanding that to an 80% utilization and seeing if longer rest and 80% utilization may be even better than a 50% utilization. So that's where this project has evolved in terms of increasing carrying capacity and looking at utilization rates. So, And we're doing it because it's based on farmer feedback on what's happening on certain farms in, in Manitoba as well. We're always looking for ideas from farmers and what they would like to try but don't have the capacity to try. So. MBFI is wide open in terms of, you know, looking and trying to encompass an all around practical view from what is happening on that farm.
1: I think there's going to be lots of really interesting projects come out in the next few years.
2: Yeah, I think Sorry. we did some baby steps in our first years of development. And so now we're ready to take on the world,
1: sort mm-hmm. of speak. <laughs> yeah. How long is this project for? Is it a three or six year This is a three-year project. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners about the project itself, your role at Manitoba Egg, or upcoming events that listeners should be aware of?
2: Well, as I mentioned, you know, we do have the grazing mentorship program starting in Manitoba. And so we do have three grazing mentors who are trained. So if there are producers that are on the fence in terms of Uh, Pardon the pun, but, you know, are trying to think about what they should do on their operations. We do have resources available. It's being sponsored by the CFGA and partners. So, you know, we have the capacity to help make those baby steps. And we're hoping that this program will evolve and continue. You know, there's programming out there that there's dollars available for producers, significant dollars, I might add, to help implement some of these logistical challenges on operations so why not take advantage of that ask for input ask for help I can't stress that enough you know I I think that over the years I've seen producers make significant changes for the better and let's keep going let's keep the ball rolling keep producers wanting to farm keep them on the landscape and show the importance of agriculture overall to, to everybody that's out there.
1: If there's listeners who are wanting to get in contact with you, how can they do that? They
2: can certainly go to the Manitoba Agriculture website and find my contact information on there, but they can certainly call or text me. My phone number is 204-648-3965. And if I can't help them in in terms of being too busy, I yeah, I have a couple of co-workers who are on board as well and we like I say we're having Three more come to our department in the near future. So we're very, very excited that we will have a full working capacity team to be able to help producers one-on-one. So yeah, looking forward to that in the future.
1: That's so exciting. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate that you, that you took the time to do this with me. So much knowledge. I feel like this project is your baby. Like you just know. I I am very
2: passionate about it. I am so passionate about it. Yeah, I um. I feel really confident now that, you know, we went through this six years and we made a lot of mistakes, but we also made a lot of headway in terms of progression in the right direction. And like I say, going out there last week, like you wouldn't even recognize some fields this year. Oh, I bet. It's just, it's just overwhelming when you st- like the tour we had last week and the producers like, let us get this straight. This was a continuous pasture. I'm like, yep. But we didn't conventionally graze it where we, you know, we let them out there in May and we picked them up there in October. We took them off when it was necessary to take them off. Just that little step alone Mm -hmm. has returned the benefits this year. Like, it's overwhelming. I was just like, wow, this (laughs) is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I'm totally confident. in when I present to producers nowadays, you know, how the benefits can reap. Mm -hmm. like just reap the rewards yeah it's an incredible amount of data that we have behind us to Mm -hmm. to say like this is what you can do well thank you so much Sounds great talk to you
0: again later okay have a good day thanks you too thank you for joining us for another episode of beef and forage roundup for more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events please visit us on facebook instagram
1: or twitter at mb beef and forage for full project reports and more information about mbfi please visit our website mbfi.ca
0: if you have feedback on the show questions about content are interested in becoming a project supporter or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic please email information at mbfi.ca if you enjoyed this episode
1: Please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.